Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he called out, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And then he wept loudly, and the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Brothers, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were terrified at his presence. We have finally come to the part of our account that we have all been waiting for. Eight chapters have been leading up to this event. The background music has been building. The director has been cueing all the actors towards this emotional climax that is this scene. Finally, the happily ever after moment that we humans so long for. But why? Why do we humans long for the happily ever after moments in a book, or in a movie, or in a play, and especially our own lives? Why do we root for the underdog? Why do we desire that the guy get the girl, that the dad saves the family farm, that Lassie brings help to little Jimmy who's fallen into the well? Why do we love these kinds of stories? Well, there are two reasons. The first is that the heart wants what the heart wants. We see that shiny, fancy thing, and our heart says, mine. And then we indulge our heart. We plot, we plan, we scheme until we get what the heart wants. And then we proclaim, this must be the Lord's will since we know that he's in control of all things. And then that thing, that car, that toy, that person, very soon loses its luster and fails to live up to the hype that we had given it. And we're left with a huge car payment, the house payment, the alimony payment, or possibly the less than our potential life payment as we've hitched ourselves to something that our heart loved, or at least so we thought. And the reason this is such a common theme in humanity is told to us in Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? But do you believe this? Because this doesn't mean that sometimes this is true. On those rare moments, on those rare occasions when we are not ourselves, that this is true then. This is truth all the time. It's a true statement that is made by our loving Father to us. He's not telling us this because He's mad at us, angry with us, disgusted with us. He's told us this truth. And it is given to us in order that we might learn not to trust our heart. Not allow it to be our master. And it's not just a true statement. It's also a warning. But why then, David? Why would we be able to attain to those things that our hearts desire if they're not good for us? 
And the answer to that question is found in the verse that follows Jeremiah 17.9 that warns us not to trust our hearts. Verse 10 of Jeremiah 17. God says, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And this then is a second warning to us. The first is not to trust our heart. And the second is to understand that if and when we do, that when we keep pushing, when we keep turning that doorknob, leaning our shoulder against that door, the door that we know that we are not to go through, the, the Lord will unlock that door. He will unstick that door. And He will allow us to go through that door. He will give you the desires of your heart. And this is the love of the Father towards His children. He desires to grant them the desires of their heart. In fact, He has given us the ability, this ability, to all the children of man, even those that are not His, which is why they are so able to attain the hellish life that they desire. Why they're able to ruin their lives with such great zeal. He gives them that which their hearts desire. And this is why they end up in hell. Because this is what they desire in their heart. An eternity away from Him. Oh, but to the elect, to that special group of humans, those that He chose as His own, to those He gives them something that their hearts would never, could never desire. Hebrews 8, 10-12 This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and upon their hearts I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And those verses are just the retelling of the truth that God had promised for centuries. Truths told to us through the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah. He has given us a new heart. A new inclination. And because of this, verse 10 of Jeremiah 17 should cause us to fear. Because we now have the ability to choose God. We've already proven this by choosing God. We did this because of the miracle of God in our believing in our hearts and confessing that Jesus is Lord and following Him in our baptism. God has given us a new heart and a new love. But saints, that old heart, the old man still remains within us. And this is why we have been given these chapters in Genesis. To allow us to sit in on the family therapy session that God is conducting with the first family of Israel, the sons of Jacob and even Jacob himself. To allow us to understand better the discipline of the Lord is told to us in Hebrews chapter 12. The discipline that he places us under for our benefit so that we may share in his holiness, Hebrews 12.10. Our heart and his desire is the first reason that we love these types of stories. And the second reason is found within the account itself. 
You see, Joseph was at this point merely an afterthought in the minds of his brothers. Their sin against him, while it still may have brought shame in their hearts when they thought about it, was long past. They probably never thought much about the brothers that they had sold for 20 pieces of silver. That silver was long gone. He was long gone. And even if they desired to see their brother again, to apologize, to beg forgiveness for what they had done, it was impossible. Time and distance had made it so. But God. We are told in verse 3 that his brothers were stunned and they were terrified as they stood in his presence. And how could they not be? The man that they figured that they would never see ever again. A man they probably had figured had died some horrible death, sold in some foreign land years ago. The man that they had hated with the fire of a thousand sons in their youth. That man was the Egyptian man standing in front of them that held not only their lives in the palm of his hand, but also the lives of their younger brother and even their father. It's no wonder that they were terrified. That brother, he was the vice regent of Egypt. He could squish them like a worm. He could dangle them over a pit at the end of a rope for the rest of their lives. And he could, if he desired, extract his revenge on them through doing to their wives and their children that which they had done to him, sell them for a pittance and think nothing of it. And they knew that this is what they deserved. But this is not what happened. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So now do not be grieved or angry with, your, with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And with this single statement, the character of Joseph and what his heart's desire was is revealed. He doesn't mince words with his brothers. He doesn't tidy up their sin against them. He flatly states, you sold me. But it was God that he was looking at, looking to, instead of looking at the men who were standing in front of him. Joseph has been with God. And the thought that Joseph was acting vengefully towards his brothers ever since they had shown up, that has just been trashed. Because the life of Joseph was not a bed of roses. and more, In reality, it was more like a walk through a sticker patch barefooted. And this life is the life that had proven his heart. What it was in his heart that captivated his heart. His God. Not the events around him. His happiness, emotional state, hadn't been determined by the happenings around him. He was no different. He acted no different after being elevated to vice regent than he did when he was a slave. When he was in the prison of his master. His situation never determined his happiness. It was the God that was the God over all those things that did. And Joseph knew things. Things that we are meant to know. 
and not just know in our minds, but know in our hearts. He knew the truth of Romans 8.28 long before it was ever penned. He knows things also from God that these men do not know. Things that he then tells them. Verses 6 through 13. He said, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. So God sent me before you to establish for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive for a great remnant of survivors. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has sent me as a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has set me as lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. And you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, lest you and your household and all that you have be impoverished. And behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is by my mouth which is speaking to you. So you must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. When the account of Joseph began back in chapter 37, there were a couple of dreams that were given to that then 17-year-old Joseph by God. Dreams that he knew that he was to reveal to his family. Dreams that he faithfully proclaimed to them despite knowing that his brothers hated him. Dreams that made them despise him all the more. And those dreams were impossible because Joseph was quickly sold as a slave and then accused of an attempted rape of an Egyptian woman. Those dreams were impossible. But God. And then when he was elevated as vice regent over Egypt, those dreams were still impossible because his brothers, his family, they weren't with him. He was estranged, estranged to them. But God. And the fulfilling of those dreams was being made manifest in their presence before the brothers. And the older brothers of Joseph, they were terrified of this man. And up until this point, Benjamin probably was as well. But the reaction of Benjamin to the revelation that the vice regent of Egypt was none other than his long-lost older brother, that was different than the other brothers. Because Benjamin had believed the story told by his brothers, that Joseph must have been killed by some wild animals, that he would never see that brother again, ever again. And yet there he stood. But God... And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. And this is then the second reason that we love happily ever after stories. Because we love miracles. And what has happened on this day in the lives of these brothers, this is the divine providence of God and is nothing short of a miracle. They had shown up in Egypt with fear and trepidation over what would take place once they got there. Would the vice regent accept the money that, from the last trip and, and be kind to him, not imprisoning them or killing them? What had happened to Simeon in all this time? 
Was he okay? Was he alive, crippled, starving? And then once again, they were singled out by the vice regent. And they were escorted away from the public view to his house. What was the meaning of all this happening? And then Simeon was released. And the vice regent seemed to warm to them. And then they were sent off with the provisions that they had come for. And then tragedy struck again. The slave of the vice regent followed after them, accusing them of stealing from him something that they knew that they had not done. And then in wonder and amazement, the thing that they had been accused of proved true. And worse than that, it was Benjamin who seemingly stole this man's cup. Just things, when things seemed to be going good, it all turned bad. Real bad. But then, out of the blue, the impossible has happened. And this is nothing short of a miracle in the lives of these men. And it wasn't just a miracle in their lives. You see, the entire adult life of Joseph has been miraculous. Even though he faced horrible events in his life, been badly treated by his family, at every turn, miraculously, his life had turned out for the good. And him standing there in front of his brothers was nothing short of a miracle. But this family reunion wasn't happening in a vacuum. They were in Egypt, a country that didn't think very much of Hebrews. And Joseph, although he was vice-regent, was still a Hebrew and a former slave to an Egyptian. How would Pharaoh react to all this commotion, to the unexpected and possibly unwanted intrusion of the family of a man who was supposed to be focusing on running his country, not his family? Verses 16 through 20. Now the news was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come, and it was good in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say this to the brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your household and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this, Take the wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. That conversation between Joseph and Pharaoh had to have happened after the telling his brothers who he was. And what are we supposed to make by the care and concern that Pharaoh has for the family of Joseph? Are we supposed to just think that he's just this great guy? Was this the reason that we are told of his benevolence, in order that we would think highly of Pharaoh? Nope. The provision of care that is being shown to Joseph and his family is, again, nothing short of a miracle. It should not have happened. Pharaoh should not have cared. How is this all possible? Why, why is this all happening? Well, the answer to that question is found in what Joseph has already said to his brothers. Verse 5, he said, So now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, he said, So God sent me before you to establish a remnant. Verse 8, he said, So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And again, verse 9, he said, Hurry, go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, 
God has set me as Lord over Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. The answer? God. And then the brothers of Joseph, the children of Israel, they obeyed. Verses 21 through 24. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And now to his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, do not be stirred up on the journey. Joseph knew something about these men. He knew the truth of Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful and wicked, that left to its own devices, that it will stir up evil passions within us. He knew that these men could, as they traveled back home, they could look at those plush wagons that they were riding in. They're no longer walking, they're riding. They could look at the abundance of the possessions that rode on the back of those donkeys, look down at their nice new clothes, and their hearts could be turned towards the dark side and hating their brother once again. And this was the warning to his older brothers. Not because he didn't trust them, not because he didn't love them. He warned them because he knew his own heart. He was no different than they were. He had the same deceitful heart that they did. And he desired that they would continue doing well. So he admonished them towards that end. Which then brings us to verses 25 through 28. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But his heart was stunned, for he didn't believe them. Yet they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him. Then the spirit of the father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Jacob had, 20 years ago, resigned himself to the fact that his favorite son, Joseph, was dead. He knew this to be truth. So is it any wonder that his heart is stunned? Because what they're telling him is unbelievable. It's inconceivable. It's completely impossible. But God... And now we can talk about the second reason that we love these accounts. Why we love those happily ever after stories. The reason that we love them is they all contain something that is completely out of our control. They are all impossible. Which is why when they happen, we rejoice. That girl should never fall for that guy. That crop should never be able to be harvested in time to save the family farm. That person should never be able to walk again. We love the miraculous because we crave the miraculous. And we do so for a reason. Because we were created by the miraculous. And even in the miraculous. 
And we so often love these types of stories because we miss the miraculous in our own humdrum seeming lives. And even when we were in our fallen state, we still believed in miracles. Love is a miracle. I know that science has explained it away now. It's nothing more than chemicals and hormones. But for anybody who has truly been in love, even the unregenerate, they know that love is much deeper than how they feel, much deeper than an emotion, much more strong than a chemical reaction. And this is just speaking about love between humans. And love is a, a miracle that we humans all crave. The love of a strange parent, of a wayward child, a lost family member that has passed away. And we all long for the miracle of love, even when we're in our unregenerate state, simply because we were created by love. But God, a human loving another human, that's natural. That's symbiotic. It's understandable, even when it's miraculous. But God, the love of God for us, that is nothing short of miraculous. That a holy God would love us is inconceivable. And we humans, we can so often not even consider this as being truth, which is just further proof that this is truth. The love of God is part of his essence. It is who he is, as told to us in 1 John 4, 8. But we humans, we are so sinful that we think, that we actually think God has to love us. I mean, he created us. In fact, he loves us so much, he created this entire universe for us. We actually think that the sun and the moon, they rise and they fall for us. This is what we humans think of the love of God towards us. We think that God is that weepy grandma who just pines over her wayward grandchildren, always thinking the best of them, hoping the best for them, rooting for them, cheering them on. Or we think that God's love for us is, is that parent who do, dotes over their spoiled children, who no matter how badly they treat him, they just keep on giving and spoiling. That's God's love for us. And that's not accurate. We are so sinful that he has to have one of his apostles write the truth of his love for us. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are going to look at the seminal verse concerning the miracle of God's love towards us. Romans chapter 5. Paul begins with verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. Verse 8. But God demonstrates his lo own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Verse 7 is speaking about human love for human. What Paul is saying there is the truth that he's telling us there is that in an extreme case, a human will die for another. And that's nothing short of miraculous. But, but then he contrasts that love with the greatest miracle of all. And then tells us of the miracle of God that while we were yet sinners, that it was then that God demonstrated his love to us. For us. And that first preposition is important. What God, through Paul, is telling us is that his love was made manifest to us. It was demonstrated to us. It's something that we should be able to see, to be able to acknowledge, to be able to think about. That's what that preposition means. Your Bible may say for and not to there. Many do. But in the original Greek, that word is eis, E-I-S, and is written over 1,700 times in the New Testament. And of those uses, it is more often than not, predominantly it is translated as to or into. An example of that is found in Mark chapter 1. Matter of fact, Mark 1 is littered with that word eis, such as in verse 5, where we read, And all the region of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So all the region of Judea was going out to him. That's where the ice is found in that verse. Not for him, but to him. And in that verse, in that Romans 5, 8 verse, we are meant to see that the love of God for us has been made manifest to us shown to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the preposition at the end of that verse that is translated as for should be translated as such. That's consistent with the way that the rest of the way it's translated. And it's not the word ice. It's a different preposition. And the Bible does tell us that God did die for us in places such as Galatians 2.20 and here in Romans 5.8. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And the preposition there, for, in that verse, is supposed to be translated as for and not to. But in that verse, the love of God for us is not the point. Why and how we are to live, that's the point of that Galatians verse. The four there tells us how we are able to do that. It's the energy, the fuel, the means that we can fulfill the point of that verse. So why the differences in translations? Well, it all comes down to how we view our lives and the miracle of the love of God either toward us or for us. Is the love of God towards you a miracle? Or is the love of God for you rational? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And this is why so often we are not amazed at the grace of God and his love for us. We don't understand God. And we don't even understand ourselves. We think that God's love, that is his overarching attribute. 
that it's his love that all the other attributes of God fall under. His righteousness is a loving righteousness. His justice is a loving justice. His omniscience is a loving omniscience. His holiness is a loving holiness. And this is not truth. Because there's only one attribute of God that is ever spoken of in the Trinitarian superlative in the Scriptures. Revelation 4.8 tells us, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the reality is that we don't understand what holiness is. We may think that we do, but we really don't. We can't. Holiness doesn't mean just being nice or pure. In the original Hebrew, when it was first told that God is holy, the word there is used there to describe God means that we are to look at the very best of everything that we can see and understand that God's holiness is completely other than that. And this is why we cannot truly understand what holiness means. Because we are finite. And we have sin flowing through every cell of our body. It's in our DNA. And he is set apart completely other than. And all we know is the than. He is so holy that he can't even look upon evil, as told to us in Habakkuk 1.13. And that evil... That's us. That's who we are. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 is a summation of who and what we are. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is sin? Well, James 4.17 tells us what sin is. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So do you know what the right thing to do is? Yes? Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and and your neighbor as yourself. And we do not, for one nanosecond of our entire life, love God that way. God is love. God is justice. He is mercy. He is faithful. And God is wrath. But above all, God is holy, holy, holy. Those are his attributes, the essence of God, his godness, if you will. And here, here are our attributes. Well, I'm, I'm kind of nice. I, I'm funny, kind, selfish, mean, a gossip. But above all, we are sin. 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 That is the essence of who we are. It is our humanness. And this is why the love of God is miraculous. And why we humans desire miracles. Not just the redeemed, but even the unsaved as well. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39. And then again in Matthew 16, 4, he said, an evil and adult generation eagerly seeks for a sign. They're looking for a miracle. And yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. The unregenerate seek for miracles, 
But they overlook, they dismiss, and they don't even care about the real miracle of God. And the reality is that even after redemption, we can still fall back into that trap of desiring signs and wonders, desiring a miracle in, in our life, even though the sign, the miracle of all miracles has already been given to us. And this is why we, like the brothers of Joseph, need to heed the warning that he gave to them. Do not be stirred up in the journey. Saints, do you not remember being alienated and hating God? That you couldn't see him as he is? Wonderful, beautiful, amazing? That you killed yourself and you couldn't come to him? But God, do you not remember the day of your salvation? Do you not remember the love of God when it was made manifest in your heart? And the overwhelming joy that you had in knowing that you loved God, but more importantly, that He loved you. Yes? Good. Because we are never supposed to ever move away from the wonder of the miracle of our salvation. Which is why from the very beginning it has been the focal point of the word of God. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the first telling of this coming miracle. The miracle that had already happened. The miracle that was yet to happen. The miracle of your salvation, which is the very thing that God in his grace and mercy tells us to consider. We were alienated from God. We could not desire him. But God, Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is impossible. But God. And this is the miracle that was the promise of the coming Lamb of God. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Impossible. But God. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Again. Impossible. But God. Isaiah 42, 1-4. through Behold my servant whom I am at hold, my chosen one in whom my soul is well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A crushed reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will bring forth justice and truth. He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Impossible. But God. 
And who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But surely he, our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our peace fell on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Impossible. But God, and all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. So his grave was assigned to the wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would, place his soul as a guilt offering. And he will see his seed. And he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Saints, this is you. Impossible. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah 53. We desire miracles because our life in Christ is a miracle. And Joseph knew something else as well. That God will give you the desires of your heart. And that God does miracles in our lives every day. Sometimes they just come in the form of a bird that lands in your view when you're contemplating the wonder of God and they just look at you. Sometimes they come in the form of a phone call from someone who you've not heard from from a long time. Someone that the Lord has placed on your heart that day. Sometimes they come in the form of a check in the mail that you weren't expecting. Or a multiplied myriad of ways. Saints, are you missing the miraculous in your life? Perhaps it's because you're living as if you don't need God in your life. 
Perhaps you've insulated your life from the need of him. You've made safe, wise, financially sound decisions. You're looking at your 401k as the center of your financial portfolio instead of investing those funds in the place that has the greatest ROI. Or perhaps it's because you're looking past God, looking past the miracles that he's done in your life, that he's doing in your life and declaring them insignificant, not enough. Perhaps the desire of your life is not God. You may think that it is. You may even say that it is. But are you living like it is? This day in Genesis 45, this day was a miraculous day for every man in our account. For the brothers of Joseph, for the father of Joseph, and even for Joseph himself, this was a but God kind of day for all of them. But the life of Joseph, again, was a life of but God kinds of days. And as he stood there that day before his brothers, he was able with absolute assurance, tell them, my life is miraculous. His life had been lived daily as a but God kind of day. He knew that if God did not show up day in and day out, his life was doomed. It was over. It wasn't possible. And his life wasn't a but God kind of life because he was vice regent. That wasn't the miracle that he desired them to understand, to think of as being miraculous. It were all the events that led up to, and yes, including that one as well. Every day of his life had been miraculous. That's why he could say, God sent me here. And he knew that every day had been miraculous. And that had been all the events that had happened during those days. The betrayal of his brothers. The years spent in slavery. The years spent as a forgotten slave in jail. And even the years spent as vice regent in Egypt. Every one of those days, every one of those years was a but God miracle that led him to this day. Saints, we love miracles. We desire miracles because we are a miracle. And God miraculously has saved us to give us the desires of our heart. And it's His intent, His desire that we live miraculously, ordinary, but God kinds of lives. Looking to him and knowing that every second is a miracle, you're not making your heart beat. God is miraculously taking care of you. And he desires that you understand that you actually have that kind of relationship with him, that you are looking for the miraculous in your life seeing the hand of God in our lives, and then thanking God for the life that he has given to us in his Son. Saints, how do you see your life? Humdrum, 
ordinary, maybe just a series of, un of unfortunate events, barely squeaking through, hanging on by your fingertips. Do you not see? It's the Lord that's keeping the ball rolling. He's the one that's keeping the lights on, the food in the pantry. It's God doing the miraculous in your life. And you're missing it. Since this is a season when we celebrate the miraculous, and we're meant to celebrate the miraculous, but we're meant to do it daily, knowing that our very existence is a miracle and the way that He has provided for us and protected us. Saints, God has got you. He's already demonstrated His love to you. And He's giving you the desires of your heart. Don't miss it. Don't miss the miracle of life that is life by getting caught up in the busyness of the world, by being conformed to the world. Saints, you really have been given a miraculous life. And God has given you the ability to choose a but God kind of life. And when you do, if you do, you will see that God is faithful and that life is supposed to be an adventure. Just ask Joseph. Let's pray.